Hello, hello, hello. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking to my dear friend Nikki Viveka. Nikki is a stand-up comedian, an improviser, and a burlesque dancer. And we're going to be talking about gender identity, sexuality, and a lot of really interesting things. Nikki has kindly let us use audio from a stand-up set that she did at Melbourne International Comedy Festival 2017. So you'll hear some of that throughout the episode. Enjoy! This is Amrutha, and you're listening to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Heck, 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 heckin' concerned. concerned. I shall try to drink the remainder of my gin at opportune moments, which might make too much noise in the mic. <laughs> Hi, Nikki. Hello, Amrutha. Welcome to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thank you. I love that the gin on the table matches your lipstick. <laughs> Well, a girl must um, must always accessorize well, <laughs> even with her alcohol. Yes, very true. You are the stylish queen of comedy. It's pink gin, which is why it matches my lipstick. Oh, it's we not should. Like, <laughs> you should mention that. I'm not like wearing this. Or you don't have transparent fish lips. Mm, no, I don't. No, <laughs> they're very rosy. <laughs> um, we've been drinking a bit of gin before we. I, I, this is, I, actually, I had gin and wine. A tipsy podcast is a good podcast. I reckon this is. I reckon this is the first podcast that I've done uh, on any substance. Okay. So this is going to be exciting. Welcome to the world of podcasting. <laughs> My first ever podcast I did. I was absolutely blown out. <laughs> on what? Oh, just on wine. It was just like me and me and um, Rose Callahan and Kirsten Lord. We all go and drunk and talk about sex. <laughs> That sounds amazing. It was someone I, like, I came out on this podcast and it came out before the first season of Asexual Healing. You came out on a podcast? Yeah. How very Ellen of you. It was. It was. <laughs> and, like, I'd come out to no one. Right. Like, it was coming out on the podcast was what made me then come out to my sister. Wow. This is how, this is how freaking 21st century I am. Right. I'm just like, oh, I just announced that I was trans on a, like, a semi-famous comedian's podcast. <laughs> it doesn't. I should get... probably tell my family. <laughs> I should probably let them know. It doesn't get more hipster and 21st century than that. I'm going to be reading you a sexy story tonight. My little book of sexy fantasies here. You all ready for something steamy? Are you ready for something sexy? Are you ready for something salacious? I've totally oversold this already, haven't I? Um, it's giving myself a lot to, lot to live up to. Um, actually, I've got an admission about my book of sexy stories. I actually, I actually did this for Centrelink purposes. Um, it's true, it's true. I'm, I'm looking for work and I went in to, to get careers advice from Centrelink and the guy was like, oh, have you tried writing erotic fiction? That was his advice. It was actually the best uh, guess he could get after looking at my CV. That's uh, something I could do. But, like, there's a reason why my CV en ended up like that. Um, and it's because... I'm going to tell that story. It's because when I was growing up, all I wanted to be was a novelist. That was, that was the plan I had. I thought, ah, oh, I'll grow up and I'll write, I'll write novels. And it's not just because I was a literature nerd, even though I was. It's not because I like making things up, even though I do. It was because at that age, um, growing up in, in Queensland in the late 80s, early 90s, 
as I was then a closet trans girl, it seemed like one of the few careers which I would actually be able to do. It's like at that time you didn't look out into the world and see trans people doing anything. Uh, you didn't really see people achieving anything. It was like the only time I'd see any other trans people would be on shows like Hard Copy, which was like this tabloid news program, which makes a current affair look like Shakespeare. <laughs> it's, it's and so sort of in between the UFO conspiracies and the prophecies of Nostradamus, then they might have a bit about trans people and we're all like, you know, drug addicted and getting murdered in King's Cross. So that wasn't you know, not so, so bright a future. Um, and then like, or it would be things like Jerry Springer. You'd watch that and they'd have a, you know, a trans girl special on Jerry Springer. It'd be like, oh, which of these sexy ladies is actually a man? And they'd be like, oh, it's a, I think that one's the lady. And they'd be like, no, I'm a man, baby. <laughs> it's like, it was terrible. And I'd be watching this going like, oh, no, my future doesn't look bright. Where did you grow up? Oh, that's a question. I grew up, um, I grew up in a rural pocket of Queensland, wow. uh, in the cold part of Queensland. Like everyone, like when damn I, it, yeah, I know. Because <laughs> like when I say I moved like to Melbourne from Queensland, so many people their first reaction is like, why? Because I think of Queensland as this heaven of good weather. It's like no, it was where I grew up was cold and foggy and miserable. It's just like it was the worst. All the bigotry of Queensland was under the sunshine. And even Brisbane was a bit wild west when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> then it just keeps on getting more and more rural from there. So. And when you were growing up, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh. <laughs> it's, it's funny because that's a thing that um, I always used to feel like I had to come up with stuff. Like when people asked me and I'd be like, I'd have to come up with something which sounded good because I couldn't tell people the truth. Um, closet trans girl at the point and the 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 image that I have that I remember um, was watching this thing on TV and it was like it was an ad for like resort style living and there's like you know there's this woman swanning by and this glorious like this glorious floaty white dress with big bangles and a big hat and stuff and that's like that's who I want to be I want to be that <laughs> lady I want to be a classy lady like her um, but of course one cannot. One cannot announce this no. <laughs> when no one knows you're a girl in rural Queensland. Right. Um, when I was growing up there, it's just like, no, <laughs> that is not a thing one announces. So I used to, like, I used to just come up with, like. Like what? I, I, like I said, I wanted to be a wizard or something <laughs> like that. I would come up with something which sounded, like, outrageous. You're like, cool. look, clearly the real thing that I want to be is by these people's standards outrageous. So I might mm. as well say. Yeah, well, yeah. I, that's actually, that's a, that's a pertinent assumption. Right. Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's that's the only image I had. Like, I was obsessed with, like, princess imagery and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I, used to, I found this glorious artwork I drew as a kid the other day, which was like, it was like a castle which has been taken over by an army of princesses. And I still think this is the coolest thing ever. Like An army of princesses? An army of princesses, and they took over the tower. And so it's just, like, all these women with fabulous hair. Um, it was like, a, like it was very, like if it, just imagine the image of the princess in the tower, except yeah. she's not lonely. She's there with a bunch of other friends. Yeah. And they all rule the tower. Did like, they have weapons? Not, no, they're princesses. Oh, so. <laughs> they, they weren't drawn with weapons. No, they were just looking fabulous in this castle, which they'd taken over. I love that. Uh, if there's going to be an exhibition of your life, 
<laughs> Maybe posthumously organized. There's going to be the early oh my works God, of the posthumously? artist. <laughs> Got a few more years yet. I'm too millennial to be talking about <laughs> posthumously organized exhibitions. Yeah. And I was actually, at the time I was doing, I was really good at school. Like, I was a mega brain. I, I was getting top of all the classes. Like, I, the school was giving me so many prizes, I got bored of them. And I used to complain about, like, how many prizes they were giving me, which, like, garnered me surprisingly little sympathy from anyone else. Uh, but everyone's like, ah, oh, when you go, you're going to be so rich, you're going to be so successful, you've got a bright future ahead of you. And I was like, no. You don't understand. You're not watching enough Jerry Springer. <laughs> You're not taking enough sick days to stay home and watch Jerry Springer just in case they've got trans girls on it. Because at this point, any representation is good. So, uh, what was the culture like in rural Queensland when you were growing up? Oh, look. Um, super super conservative it's it was really <laughs> when i talk about my upbringing actually it doesn't a lot of people like just stare at me as if it's not real and to me it almost doesn't feel real as well because it was so old school because um at the time when i was growing up like queensland was um the land this... that time forgot well yeah and by by design like sort of um we had a very long conservative uh, government there um, under the Bielke Peterson era. It's going like a, a little bit back before my time, but um, we were still sort of living in the um, uh, in the throes of it. And he had this very sort of like isolationist approach to Queensland. That Queensland was separate to the other states, um, and so the rules are always very different in Queensland. They're different laws. Um, like when I was at school, there was still the debate of whether homosexuality would be legalised and, and stuff like that. And it was, there was this big drama, like if we, you know, like people on, like, barking on the on the TV, oh, if we make this legal, then all the homosexuals are going to come up from Sydney and they're going to invade Queensland. And <laughs> Queensland, as we know it, will be destroyed. Um, well, it'll be the land of Queens. I know, I know. It sounds like a gay state. It should... <coughs> Be a super gay state. Like mm-hmm. our big tourist thing is a giant freaking pineapple. How gay is that? Like, whole. Queensland should be super. Oh, tropical, everyone. Like, it should be camp. It's called Queensland. It should be the campus state of all. And it's almost like everyone's in this overdrive of like, no, nope, no, nope, nothing gay here. Don't mind the giant pineapple. Just like, we're all super straight. Um, and, but no, it was, it was really, it was really different. And it was even a, um, it was a very restrictive sort of sort of society, and and even things like when we used to like we used to go to the the carnival, like to the fair type thing, and it feels so old school when I talk about it because we still had like there were the freak shows and what? Yeah, they used to come around with a freak show and um. Did they have a bearded lady? I don't know. Oh, they used to have a one there with the there was the headless lady, and there was the lady who was just a head. You can probably see how the illusion is done. <laughs> Like, there's a bit of a theme there, but I've got this really strong memory of a kid of seeing, like, the the headless lady one because the picture was graphic. Mm. The picture advertising her showed a woman without a head and then spurting blood veins coming out of the next time. That seems like something that's escaped the late, like, the late 1800s, doesn't right, it? It right. doesn't seem 
like something you would encounter um, even in the, in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, well, but I, Queensland I mean, had a lot of those old old school things. It just felt like they, mm. they still existed there. They still sort of survived there. Yeah. And it was a place where even though, even though the town is going up in Toowoomba, it's quite, quite a large town for the area and it's certainly a much larger town now, um, it felt smaller than it was. Uh, it felt like everybody would always know your business. Everyone was always watching you. It was it was real. It was a real town of nosy neighbours mm. who would keep track of your every move. It's like if you went out wearing anything slightly unusual, people would stare. Like I remember one time, just as a teenager, I just was went downtown wearing all black, which is just like pretty common, right? Not not in Queensland at the time. A whole like. It was like what? that scene where you walk in a saloon and the person stops <laughs> playing the piano and everyone's like, what the, what the fuck? <laughs> like, everyone was just staring at me. You don't have was... emo kids in Queensland? Oh, well, they exist in Brisbane. Like, Brisbane had quite a, oh, quite a healthy goth right. scene. But, like, <laughs> in Toowoomba, it was like, oh, my God, the, the swampies. <laughs> the swampies are going to come, like, and they'll bring Satan and they'll bring emo. And, like, it was actually quite... Oh, why hardcore? Yeah, yeah, people were, were still pretty pretty worried about that. Um, so what did kids wear when you were growing up? Uh, it basically divided into the country kids who dressed real country um, and the wannabe surfer kids, which is weird because there is not a surf beach anywhere near <laughs> Queensland. You've got to drive us at least an hour and a half to get to the surf, <laughs> the Gold Coast. What were you dressing like? Because you were still in the closet at that point. Oh, uh, yeah, I wore a lot of surfer gear. <laughs> I wore a lot of, like... Fake surfing. I've never been. I've been surfing once in my life, quite recently. <laughs> Congratulations! I was, a t- I was a fraud in so many ways as a teenager. What you describe of where you grew up sounds like a very suffocating place in some ways. Yeah, the thing with growing up in a place like that, I remember thing a lot of kids said was they just felt like they were waiting the whole time. People felt you're always waiting. You're waiting until you get out. Mm. In the city, and nothing had happened until you leave. Um, you're waiting for stuff to get better. And I've been back to Queensland. I've worked there. I've worked there as an adult later. And there are still people there who are still in that mindset. Like I talk to people who would be in their 20s, their 30s, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get out of this town one day. And they're still sort of waiting until that they make that move. And it can make, at times, those, those towns could feel like whole this feels like a whole waiting room the whole town just everyone's there but they're not excited about being there they don't like being there they're just there because they don't know where else to go they don't know what what else to do Mm. and everyone talks this big game about getting out when they break out and when they leave people end up coming back people always end up coming back it's like um there's a gravity about small towns which pulls you back in Mm. after a while this, what, what you're describing of the town sounds like so many American movies I've seen where, you know, the small town kid mm. is just biding his time, waiting to get out on the first bus out of town by daybreak or something like that. You yeah, know? break out, get to the big smoke of Brisbane. <laughs> get the big time, big apple, big pineapple. <laughs> big pineapple. <laughs> I don't um, know what that's like. When I first came to Australia, I felt a little trapped but yeah. that was not so much by Australia, but just because I was feeling out of place in mm. my life. And geographically, I was 15 years old. I was 
I had just moved across continents mm. and I was in a new school filled with white people for the first time. And when I looked in the mirror, I used to be surprised at how dark I was compared to everyone else because I was just looking at white faces and I thought that's what my face looks like. Mm. So I felt I felt a little bit out of place, but I don't I have never felt the way that you've described that trying waiting to get out of a dead town until I went back to where I grew up in Oman mm. and there are people that still live there and now I know how small that place was. Wow. And I feel like I don't know if I could have continued living here for, you know. But when you're when you're a kid you don't you don't have that sense of scale about your hometown. Like I remember I remember like there used to be a duck a duck <laughs> like we go to visit as a um as children. It was like it was called like Annand because it was on Annand Street and it was like it was basically just a duck pond. <laughs> but I remember looking at a map of Australia and there's like air and whatever and I was like, why isn't like Annand on this map? <laughs> Like, this map is a bad map. It doesn't have this major duck lake on it. It's like you think that that place you grew up is the world. It feels like the world at the time. And all those little, uh, the little monuments. Yeah. It's only when you get out and you go like, oh, the world is big. Yeah. There are big things in the world. And then when you come back to your hometown, you're like, oh. Yeah. In our imaginations and memories, childhood is for many people. So, such a time when you were the truest, in a way, the truest version of yourself, oh, <laughs> right? In your mind, at least. Well, I mean, not in my case. Obviously. Not in your case. It's not. It's not like that. Being um, being closet trans and you're going out, right? Um, because you're aware of not being right from very early on. Mm. Um, at least in my case, like it's different for other people. Like some people, some people obviously only discover that they're mm. they're trans later on. Um, and you know that they, have the persistent sense of something being being wrong, mm. and then they can't put a word to it from until later. For me, I was always very aware of it. Like as a as a kid, I was always um, very, uh, you know, I, I had a strong identification as a as a girl from when I was very very young. I was like, as I, you know, as I told you, like I used to do all the princess art and stuff. Yeah. But I was always <laughs> Nikki as a as a kid. I used my girl name from. When I was about two. Wow. And I get, I get super angry if anyone, like, used the, the boy version of it on me. Um, like, it was the the parents tried it once and I was in trouble and they got in more trouble and they're like, oh, we won't do that again. <laughs> um, and I guess you sort of, at least in early times, like, I was aware of being... I remember first being like, you know, like super aware of it, I suppose, when I went to preschool, which is the first time I had uniforms. Mm. Um, and there's a boy's uniform and the girl's uniform. Um, and I remember fighting and trying to tear this thing off me. Um, so I arrived at the school and I saw what the deal was. And it wasn't, we all, we all weren't wearing the same thing and the girls were wearing something else. Um, and so I tried to tear this horrible thing off me. And it's a big fight in the car with my mum. Um... And there was there was always there's always this thing like each time as you get older like all these these gender things come come in like you know you get bought these clothes that you're supposed to wear and I refuse to wear them and like my mum used to buy me all these stacks and stacks of clothes and be like just wear something pick something and be like no 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 none of it um 
and you know, then they when they make you cut your hair, because obviously I had like you know you're allowed to have long, fabulous hair when you're a kid, and mm. that's great. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And then like, but there's that point where you're like, they're like, no, you've got to stop coming to the salon with your mum. You've got to go into the barber shop. Yeah, well, it was like because there were there were two. There was like there was a there was a lady salon, and I remember there was like stags for men. It was right next door, but <laughs> run by the same business, and they specialised in mullets and flat tops. <laughs> and at a certain point, there was this like I was meant to go in there, and I refused. I'm like, no, I'm not going in there. I go to the salon with my mum, and I was able, so I kept going to the salon with my mum for like years longer than I was supposed to. Because um, I refused to go into the <laughs> into the mullet factory, um, and it was but but you know like eventually they do they they do force you. But the thing is that you never get you know you, I was very aware of not being able to live how I wanted to of not being the person I was supposed to be mm. um, even at that very very young age. Um, and so I don't have those same that sort of same sense of, mm. of purity or nostalgia about childhood. Yeah. I was very sad as a child. Um, I get that. Because of, because of that. So I'd be very sort of... Things like you're not able to really talk about it. You don't have the words for it at that point. Um, so I was just this kind of like moody kid. <laughs> no, one, no one really knew why. I mean, I'm saying no one. I mean, people had a fair idea. Like people could tell that I was going to grow up to be queer because I could hear the adults, like the adults would talk about that. I'd hear them talking about it and arguing about that and yelling at each other about that and stuff. Um, it was a big thing and you're, so you're aware not just that you're different but also that your difference is a problem. Mm. Um, and so you become determined to not be different, to try to, to try to hide it, to try to stop it being a problem for people because you're like, oh, my God, they're going to like, you know, um, it's gonna it's gonna break Dad's heart. So I can't. Mm. Uh, I gotta fight it. I've gotta not let that mm. that happen. Um, Isn't it interesting how invested other humans are in somebody else's identity? I mean, one would think that everybody would just worry about their own. Well, because I think. I think, though, that you see your child as an extension of your own identity. It's that there's a time, especially when you're very young, adults don't really see you as your own person yet. You're like, you're the new them. You're the new version of them. Mm. I I suppose rather than necessarily being a new them, you're the chance to do the things that they didn't do right. But also people see a lot of themselves in others who are not even related to them. Yeah. Because it's important for them to see others in a way that reinforces one's own identity. Mm. And if you're changing in a way that I cannot understand or hadn't anticipated, mm. it means that I might be not who I think I am either. Mm. And that's a very that's a very confronting thing. It's an, a, a subconscious process, I think. Yeah, and I think, I think too, like, especially with being... Because people get up very upset with you being queer... Um, and in different, every different style of it. And it's like, it's just the fact of difference is all that it is. Because like, you know, like the, the people were so outraged about about the gays when <laughs> I was going up. And like how promiscuous the gays were all meant to be or so forth. 
But then they can only come out as asexual later. People go head up about that. Mm. It's just like because you have no sex. It's like what? What? No, that's different. It doesn't mm. matter if like how people perceive you, if it's different to the the norm. It's the problem. And I think part of that is that a lot of people go through their lives without without questioning why they do things mm. or, or how they do things. Like there's that assumption that oh, you get up and you get into a relationship and if the relationship works reasonably well, you get married and then you have kids and you do this. And you don't stop to think about whether it makes you happy, whether Mm. that's what you want in your life because it's just what you do. So if somebody completely backs up and is just like, well, you know what, I like like having sex with other people like me Um, or I don't like having sex at all or, um, you know, I'm not the gender you're trying to make me be, stuff like that, then it's sort of making people question... Mm themselves like did you want all this mm. is this what you wanted out of life mm. and people don't like that necessarily because sometimes people are not happy in their choices yeah. of course the problem the problem with me writing erotic stories is the whole sex thing I don't I don't really do sexy like I, I never really enjoyed sex when I tried it I didn't like it I'm, I'm what's called asexual. Yeah, I'm like a one-woman tour of the LGBTIA <laughs> acronym. I'm, I'm the T and A, which sounds like a sexy combination. Uh, it's not. That's what it means practically is all this. Yeah, none of your business or anybody else's ever. And so, like, I tried sex a few different ways. And whatever it was that people got out of it, I just never experienced Like, sex was like one of those things like Adam Sandler films or... <laughs> <laughs> Or, like, or, or test match cricket. It's like, I, I can see that it's popular. I just don't know why. I've heard this so often in so many contexts. Like, well, everyone has tough times. I've, I've felt this way, but you just deal with it. You just deal with it and carry on. This attitude, you just deal with mm. it and carry on. All of us have had tough times. Is I, I always detect a tinge of regret and sadness mm. and confusion in there that was uh, the people that probably didn't assert their identities as you know the people whose identities were different and they didn't assert themselves they maybe kept it quiet they mm. maybe stayed in their roles they i sense in them an anger that i didn't get to do this yeah. and i didn't do this so how dare you mm. you know i think there's a lot of um you know, like, with people who have, even, like, the really mainstream sort of identities, if I can call it that, like, cisgender, heterosexual people, because those narratives, the mainstream narrative is so strong there, it's very easy for people to subsume their own wants and own personalities to just follow that narrative. Like, I think every queer person needs to think about identity. You spend ages, like, there'll be years of your life where that's the main thing you think about. It's just unpacking and examining your identity. Who am I? What do I actually want? What do I need? And you need to be confident enough about that identity to express it to the world and then face all the ramifications you get for that. Whereas a lot of, say, straight people don't need to do that. Mm. Um, and everyone should. Everyone should think about their own identity in that, in that amount of depth and that amount of detail. Um, but because people aren't, like, they're not forced to, then they, mm. they don't. And I think a lot of people in those those identities have this vague sense of dissatisfaction because they haven't really thought 
hard about what they want out of yeah out of relationships or out of life like that mm. and they've done what has been presented to them as this is what everyone does mm. and this is what makes you happy and then it doesn't make them happy mm. and then they're like well now what the expectation of so many heterosis people is that you should be married by x age oh god and <laughs> yes. i'm i'm 33 i'm not married mm. and there's not a day that i don't hear about this from my grandmother like yeah, you know it, it's like it builds up that's me it builds up and i know so many people that are married for the sake of being married mm. people with low self esteem got married because they thought that that was the only way to find love yeah and that that would make them feel complete, complete. as a person if they did this right? these things and so we're not really taught to so in the old days and to a, to a certain extent even now our identities were prescribed by society mm. they were decided by where you were born who your parents were what your parents did and now we have this um kind of burden on ourselves mm. i i heard this idea it's not it's not an original idea i heard this idea from Esther Perel the yeah. famous you know Esther Perel i've heard her name she's a famous psychologist anthropologist and she I... does a lot of work with um um relationships Mm-hmm. sexuality so she she has this idea that now we have the burden on us to be able to form our own identities that's true that's true yeah. we sort of need to if you do just do the prescribed identity apart from the fact that statistically it's probably not going to make you happy but like if you do there's also like there is also sort of a judgment on that yeah like if you just do exactly what your parents did which is like what most of our gen- generations of family did Uh, and married your high school sweetheart and lived in the same street you grew up in and do whatever people would be like really <laughs> really that's the statement you bring to the world like people would like even if that was what you wanted and that was what made you happy that would be sort of questioned like we yeah. do have yeah there I is a sense on which we are supposed to have more ambition make an identity, make an identity yeah. right so before it's like it's damned if you do it's damned if know, you don't I don't know why, why why stick to one identity though one identity is so boring that's why people are dissatisfied Yeah. We've got like cuz all all manner of things are open to you mm. in the world. If you want to go off and be a, a shit rock musician for years, <laughs> you can. You can do that. Yeah. Um if you want to go and write sexy novels, you can. If you want to like um travel the world doing doing charity work, you can. Like there's like all these things are actually open to you. Yeah. And when you pick one thing, It's like it's incredibly limiting and I don't think mm. I th- I think almost that there's there's almost in in a way too much pressure to be just one yeah one version of yourself in your life. Oh, that's such a good point. Because everyone actually goes through multiple versions of yourselves yeah. and you know you need to be like okay with that. So So maybe we haven't really evolved all that much. So maybe in the old days it was this is who you are and stick to it and now it's find who you are and stick to it. Yeah. But maybe the better solution is be all the things that you want to be if you can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's there's that limiting factor. <laughs> Not everyone can I but I would change the world saving turtles as well too if I, <laughs> if I could have the money to get further than Geelong. I would be a millionaire and a superhero and <laughs> a princess and an award-winning <laughs> film director and <laughs> But the thing like the world the world is both um It's both more closed than you told but also more open than you believe. Mm. Like 
you can try to spread anything. Like it's it's wrong to say that you can do anything, mm. but you can try anything. And you yourself is something that can constantly be rewritten. You can constantly edit who you are. Yeah, that's a very good and point. And just because you've been a certain way in the past doesn't mean you need to keep being that person. Just because people expect you to be a certain way doesn't mm. mean you need to mm. need to do that. Like if I if I could choose between having sex or a moderately nice brunch, I'm going to go the brunch. <laughs> it doesn't even need to be that good of a brunch, really. Just a, just a bit of Vegemite on toast or, or, or an up and go or something. That would, that would do. It's like I, I, when I was having sex, I could never work out. I never even knew whether like, to put the noises or where the good bits were meant to be. It's all just a mystery to me. Um, so, like, trying to write sexual fantasies, I couldn't do it because I don't have anything to work with. I don't fantasise about sex. Like, when I'm having sex, or when I used to do that, was I would fantasise about the other stuff that I could be doing rather than having sex. I, like, I need to distract myself with thinking about something else. Like, I'd be thinking about, oh, I wonder what minotaurs actually eat. <laughs> because they've got, they've got the face of a cow. So they have cow taste buds, so they'd, they'd like the taste of grass. But they've got a human stomach, so they can't digest the grass. So their stomach needs human food, but they can't chew human food, they've got cow teeth. So what do they eat? It, it must be even triggering for you now, hearing all of this shit going on about Safe Schools Program and ScoMo, the asshole... I don't know if I'm allowed to call our Prime Minister an asshole. You can call him an asshole. He's going to stop being an asshole if he doesn't want to be called an asshole. Um, it's... Look, it is hard because there's a there's a level... Like, you know, like we're talking about with, with kids. When you're, when you're an adult and you look at your own children, you're like, well, all these things aren't wrong for me, but I can make it better for them. And there's a lot of that, especially within the trans community, that every generation went through different levels. Um different levels of, of trauma growing growing up. But you trust that the world is going to get better. Mm. And, like, I can see it, like, even with the generation before me, they went through they went through gender expectations on level which I never had to experience. I went through um, abusive reactions to their identities, which I never had to experience. It's a very different generational thing. Like, it's, you can see definite bands between um, the generation above me or, like, mm. the younger generation now where it's so much more accepting and they grow up with the internet and stuff like that it's like everyone's very um you know it's a, it's a different approach to it mm. but part of the way you avoid having the regret over like say not coming out because like, obviously there's part of me it's always like well i knew when i was you know and i knew i was trans i knew the word before i went into puberty if i'd come out then, how different life would be. And, of course, if you go back in time to that point, you discover all the reasons why you didn't come out because mm. uh, rural Queensland at the time was scary. Mm. But you still, part of the way you avoid having that regret is to be like, well, I'm part of this generation which is hopefully changing things for the next generation. And you'll see that next generation grow up and they'll be able to come out earlier. They'll be able to live their lives freer. They'll get more acceptance from their peers. They'll have live with less fear, le- live with less doubt. Um, and you have that narrative in your head that you hope things are getting better. And so when 
you see something like that which has made the world better for people and then it gets taken away and it gets aggressively taken away mm. like that. You're like, no, don't. Seeing things happen to the next generation mm. of, of trans people is heartbreaking mm. um, because you want... You want everything that you've been through in your own life to have been part of a narrative of improvement. Mm. Um, and the thought that that could be taken away, that there are still people in the world who are so aggressively trying to take it away from us. Mm. That's very scary. And I know, and that's the thing that you don't, like adults with their own children don't realise how much their children are taking in mm. about the world. But writing was something I thought, ah, that that I can do, because that's just completely gender independent. Um, That's a thing I could do. And it's also because, like, I mean, writers have a history of being a bit gender playful, don't they? I mean, even Dan Brown started off writing chick letters, Danielle Brown. He did, that's true, look it up. Um, So I thought, oh, no, I'm going to be able to do this. So when I went to university, I just studied subjects which I thought would help me write good novels. Like, so I studied classics so I could make allusions to myths and, like, minotaurs and medusas and stuff like that. My favourite was Medusa. Did you like her? Like, the, the snakes for hair? I loved her because she was obviously the brainiest one of all the Greek monsters. Because, uh, like, she would be, because she's got, like, a human brain. But then she's got all these snake heads which each have their own little brain. And they all feed into the... Mo- so she's like a one-woman internet. <laughs> She'd be super smart. Of course, all the stories recorded of her is just like, ah, oh, she's so ugly. She turned boys to stone with her face. Like, you know, which is an indictment on how history has treated smart women. <laughs> so I studied classics and I studied psychology so I'd know how people worked and how to do emotional dramas and stuff like that. And I studied anthropology so I'd know about different cultures and different ways of living. I studied history in case I wanted to write a book set in the English Regency, for example. Uh, and I studied astrophysics in case I wanted to, like, go to space uh, in the book. And I studied biology in case I wanted to have, like, aliens in space and I could design, like, a, a civilization of giant amoebas or something. And I studied philosophy in case I wanted the characters to meet God. Uh, I neglected to study writing. Slight oversight. I thought I'd have that down and I just needed the content. No, it doesn't work like that. After many years at university, I exited with no novel and a degree that was completely fucking useless. <laughs> so that's how I ended up at Centrelink with a guy just going, oh, I don't know what to do. Maybe erotic stories. <laughs> but it wasn't a bad idea, I thought. No, it's not a bad idea, actually. I mean, like, erotic stories do sell. As a way of writing, that's something that does make money. Certainly more market for dirty stories than there are for you know, a novel about culturally diverse Regency gentry (laughs) travelling into space to discover that God's a giant amoeba. Um. For for what I think is one of the bravest things about you is that you tried a whole bunch of careers (laughs) before you... And, and, you know, you persevered and you now made it as a comedian. Mm. Um, Tell my parents that, please. (laughs) (laughs) This generation, we are now also worried about who we're going to be and that, you know, what career we're going to have. Is it mm. going to be fulfilling? Yeah. You know, self-actualization. So you, choosing to be a comedian is a big task. And how? so how did you know that this is what you want to do? Well, I, could, I should have known a lot earlier. Um, I should have known a lot earlier because I've 
always been into putting jokes on things. Like, even if I go right back to high school, I was the smart kid on top of my class, but I just liked to make jokes. I made trouble <laughs> in class making jokes and stuff like that. I would write whole essays which are basically just full of jokes. I got in a lot of trouble for doing this kind of thing. What's what's a, what, what's an example? Oh, God. Um, I mean, I used to... <laughs> I, I used to I used to write some pretty outrageous essays for for high school, um, but there was one like we had a sex ed thing which was super heteronormative, super like it was. We got this um, this assignment which was awful of questions about love and sex and stuff like that. I thought it was really presumptuous that this dude was asking us all this personal stuff. So I just wrote up like as a joke, I wrote up answers to it. With just all these dirty jokes in it. Oh. Um, mostly dirty puns. I don't have a super dirty imagination, um, but I could do puns well. <laughs> um, and so I just like had this thing like loaded up with as much as many puns and innuendo as I could master. Do you remember I, any? I'm not going to go through them because they're bad. They're teenagers. No, tell me. Teenage, least no, no, one. no, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, but it was like I put like. I just showed this to my friends as a joke. It was like, look at this. Imagine if I put this in. And everyone thought it was awesome. And so I kept writing it. I kept doing more of the assignment like that. And it just had to go in. It became its own thing. And I put it in and I got in so much trouble. Oh, my God. I can imagine that your essays were becoming the stuff of school legend. <laughs> well, that, that particular one, it got out of my school because it like got um, – we made copies of it so more people at the school could read it. <laughs> And then one of my friends made copies of it to give to what a his girlfriend and they went to her school and then it went around a few of the schools in my hometown. Wow. Um, as people read this dirty essay. <laughs> um, it's like, I'm sure it would be extremely embarrassing now. Did you get into trouble for that? Oh, yeah. I got in a lot of trouble. But did your parents secretly giggle at it before? Oh, no, no. They were, they were cross. <laughs> they were cross. I left a page of it on the photocopy in mum's home office. And she found it, and she was furious. Um, Good old Nikki, sticking it, it to was, the man. It was funny. She left it. To, she she left the page with like all this rude humor on it. She just left it on my on um, my desk. Oh, in my room with a um, post-it note on it. Um, with she had drawn like a shocked emoji. <laughs> she had drawn her face like <laughs> shocked. Oh my god! Did you shit yourself oh, when you saw that? Uh, it was like I felt like an idiot. Um, but you know, like I've I've always been doing stuff stuff like that. Like I'd, I insert jokes in things. Like I used to want to be a novelist, and I've tried to write these serious novels. But my novels were mostly excuses for gags. Mm. So, in a sense, I've always been a been a comedian like that. Like there's been so many signs that that's what I wanted to do was was comedy. And mm. um, that was a long time before I'd actually try it just because I felt like nervous about how to start mm. and sort of particularly nervous about going to open mics mm. to this they're gradually improving a little bit but they've you know traditionally been a very like you know dominated by straight white men sort of in yeah. environment um and you know even when you're in the closet that's still very challenging to be in and mm. not an environment I wanted to be in I mean a lot of my life I've avoided going into Situations so I'm gonna to have to deal with too many men in a group. Um, it's a very uncomfortable sort of situation, and so like 
when you go to like stand up nights and it would be so broy and just be all these bros getting up doing bro jokes about their dicks and it's like, well, I'm not going to fit in here. <laughs> so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't do it. So I had to get, um, I had to get confident in myself as a performer by performing my own solo show and stuff first. In your family, do you think they would have been supportive of you being a comedian if you told them oh, as a gosh, kid? No, gosh, no. Gosh, no, 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 no. That was any arts career was a hobby on the side. Mm. You weren't supposed to pursue it. What did they want you to do? Art medicine. Mm. Supposed to do. Supposed to do um, very conventional careers in in my family, and it's it's funny with my family because every single family member had a creative bent, which they then ruthlessly crushed out of themselves. Um, wow! And they've all done it. Every generation. My grandfather is a dentist. Really wanted to be a writer or something like that. He had this huge creative streak, which wouldn't allow himself to express. My mum, fabulous actress, tremendous actress, not allowed to pursue it as a career. Wow. And then, you know, and then she passed the same on to me of this, like, you know, she, like, supported the fact that I acted and and loved that, but really pushed me to do medicine or something like that. Mm. Um and so, for, yeah, for a long time there was that idea that, like, yeah, I'm talented at this, yeah, I'm good at this, but you don't go and mm. pursue it. Um, what a rebel you are. The first person in generations to, you know, break so many <laughs> conventions and so many restrictions and and forge your identity <laughs> exactly as you wanted it. I, I think in some ways, though, like, I've, I've been a little bit, in, like, inspired by my family in that, in terms of seeing... Because so I can see my family are very um, successful in their careers, but I can see if they had that creative yearning that, and it didn't get satisfied, then you never get over it. Mm-hmm. You never get over it. It's still bugging you. Mm-hmm. And you can be, like, you know, at the end of a successful career and still be like, ah, oh, but I never wrote that book. I never mm-hmm. did that thing. And so part of me has always been like, well, I'm, I don't want to do that. I've got to, that's like sort of my inspiration. I felt like I sort of owed it to the family to mm. create this. And of course it's not, look, I'll be honest, financially it's not a very sensible decision. <laughs> it's, I've, you know, I had to depend on family support and stuff a lot more than um, than you'd want to in, in your life just to, to be able to do it. But part of that is, I, I think, also because, like, I am, like, pursuing the, the great family creative dream. And as mm. long as it's going well and the family like, oh, okay, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> we would have rather you were a doctor who was able to buy us a house by now, but all right, keep going. Um, it's... But that's the yardstick of uh, financial success is just mm. one of the many ways in which you yeah. can measure success. It's very scary for creative people because this issue of money hangs over mm. everyone's heads. Oh, the, the thing is, like, in making art costs money. Yeah. Um, it costs a lot of money to do it. And the more ambitious you are, what you want to do, the more it costs. Mm. And it's hard to get that because mm. if you work a job which gives you the money to do that, you don't have the energy or the time to then do the thing. It's, it's a constant. Yeah. It's a constant I was having this conversation with a friend just yesterday he was saying that the notion of just leaving everything and being absolutely poor and on the streets, but then you're at least free to pursue your art mm. fully without having to worry about um, 
people's expectations without having to worry about going to a job and slogging your ass off there and then mm. coming home and trying to find some reserves of energy to do your thing. And on the other hand, the shame that comes from being a struggling artist mm -hmm. who doesn't have material resources, um, both of them are sort of a very difficult line to straddle. You, you need to throw money at it to make it work. Mm. Um, like you can't put on a season of a show without spending a lot of money mm. on getting it up. Putting shows into festivals costs money, like hiring venues costs money, like... That's not even including all your costumes, your props. Like if you want someone to direct you or dramatic or stuff like that, there's all this stuff that you need to to spend money on. Um, and after a while, it, it gets this point of like, yeah, there's so much you can do as a staffing artist, um, but actually to get any momentum in your career needs, needs a bit more. There's actually a lot of privilege, I think, in being, being able to put on art. I mean, I guess, like, I've, um, now, as, as I said, I've been fortunate enough coming from a middle-class background um, that, you know, my parents have supported me a bit, but the thing is, all of that money goes to art. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's sort of, I don't have a lot to spend on myself. I mm -hmm. don't get to be, like, um, I sort of live super poor even with that support because the money all goes towards putting on shows just in the trust that that's going to work out at some point or more just not even that I think for me because I did give up art for a long time and then being able to get back on stage after a while just felt like such a rare opportunity and such a privilege it's like I'm just going to milk this for what it's worth if people are letting me be on a stage and talking to Mike I'm just going to keep doing that I'm going to keep doing that and so it's just like I've thrown everything at doing that um sort of always assuming i guess that any show i do could be the last one this wow. could be the last time that people are going to let me talk on stage at them why do you have that kind of perspective though um i mean part of it is because i because i did give up the thing for a while and i know that something which you think is going to be be your life can go away um so what's your idea of the future? Because you seem to be thinking pretty short term. Yeah. You just worry about your next season, do you, yeah. at this point? Where um, do you see yourself in 10 years, though? I don't. You don't? I don't look that far ahead. Whatever you think is going to happen in 10 years is not going to happen. Yeah, I suppose. No, like, I mean, 10 years ago was when we were, we were at film school. Together, yeah, darling. that's right. I thought I was going to be, like, this amazing, edgy filmmaker who was making queer cinema solely as an edgy thing. <laughs> um, mm. uh, and, you know, like, I, f I forget what, what, like, your motivation, but you were, like, all in film as well, obviously. Yeah, I thought like, I would making... be some kind of fancy showrunner for a TV show. So, and you were making such serious films, like, uh, yeah, serious right. film, like, for VCA. Yeah, I did make a serious film, but yeah, here I like, am yeah. doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, we... we we were both so absorbed in that. I mean, that's what we're doing at that time. It's like, that's what we're going to be. That's what we're going to do. Me then couldn't have predicted exactly how the next 10 years were going to go at, at all. Mm. And a lot of stuff which has gone well for me in, in some sense has been from not thinking about the future anymore. Yeah. You um, make such a good point, though. When you obsessively try to plan your future, mm. even as a creative person, you're once again confining yourself to some idea 
of the kind of person mm. that you want to be. Yeah. Uh, and you start then pandering to the expectations of a narrative. Yeah. Um, and if it doesn't work out in that way, or it, even if you even if you're not even started on down that path, but you're just filled with anxiety and dread that mm-hmm. how am I going to do this? I I know it from my own life. It wasn't until I st- stopped worrying about. I always said I was going to be a filmmaker, mm. and now if I give up on that, what's my identity going to oh, be? Yeah, what's it say about you? What if does you're it not say that? about me? Yeah. If I'm not the girl that always wanted to make films, and everybody in my family knows me as the you know, the mm. girl that always wanted to make films, then who am I going to be? Mm. Um, and it wasn't until I stopped worrying about the future, distilled it down to what I wanted to do, which was tell stories. Mm. I could allow myself to be in the present and just do a podcast, for example. Yeah, so I, yeah. I understand what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense, of, especially for a creative person. Mm. And it was, it was very, I think it was very similar with coming out, uh, I think, that if you thought of that, if you're trying to think ahead, the whole future, like you're sitting there being like, okay, am I, am I a transsexual woman? Is that what, what I am? It's scary. Mm. It's a scary thought. But if you're just like, I'm going to wear eyeliner today, that's easy. Mm. Anyone can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you just sort of, you can, you distance yourself from the fear that comes with, because like there's all this fear attached to it queer identity which mm. you're like do I label myself with mm. this thing because then everyone's attitude towards me will change mm. and you don't know who you'll keep who you lose but you know it'll change mm. all your friendships will change all your family relationships will change your career will change everything will and it's terrifying like that um and so trying to do it all at once it's it's like looking at the Himalayas and being like I'm gonna climb those mm. it's, no of course you're not mm. that's not how you climb the Himalayas you climb it by going like I'm gonna get to the top of that hill and then we'll see how I'm going right um and that sort of living in the moment which is also a thing which I really got from improv of just mm. like well we'll just do this and see what happens mm. um and that makes it so much easier because I'm just like oh you know what let's just mm. let's just go out just like this tonight and we'll see what happens yeah I think that that really frees you from the burden of fulfilling a script of some yeah. sort. And because it, it's such a, and it's such a challenging script. I mean, especially like, you know, if you grew up with the scripts I grew up with about yeah. what it meant to, um, to be non-normative in terms of sexuality or, or gender, this is terrifying scripts. Absolutely. Like as a, um, as a kid, I thought, well, God, am I really going to be, am I going to go to King's Cross and be a, like a sex worker on the streets of the cross? Like, cause that's what, that's yeah. the only script that was really provided for um, wow. for trans people at that stage. I'm like, well, I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, I'm a nerd who likes books, um, and you know, and there's not there was not at that time available uh, a script for a, a trans woman who liked to stay in uh, with a cup of tea and a nice book. Um, that wasn't what trans people did in the world, mm. um, according to that script. Even like even the more more detailed, accurate scripts that you get like when you actually start interacting with the queer community and, and knowing people there are still scripts there which you don't have to follow yeah there are still within um they're still within the trans world there's the idea of the transition pathway that people go on and you'll get this procedure and this procedure and then you'll do this and you'll come out in this way or else you'll go like another path through the system and you'll like um uh, do this and this and this but whatever and everyone's individual and you 
don't know what your path is going to be at the mm-hmm. beginning. Like you need a direction. You need some sort of sense of what might come out of this, this process. But yeah, you need to. You do need to take it one step at a time mm. and um, and discover who you actually are. So. Yeah, authenticity is the is the um, the big word or the big concept these days. Mm. I was listening to an interview with Hassan Minaj, the uh, stand up comedian, on mm. a podcast, and he was saying that his work didn't start getting good until he completely owned being the Indian American kid that he was mm. and started speaking so authentically as to use non-English words in his stand-up yeah. that only the Indian community really knew of. But he was yeah. like, this is how authentic I'm going to be. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that after you came out, um, your comedy became sharper or better in any way? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, it definitely did. And it's interesting because when I was so worried about it, like when I was, it's like when I was doing improv and, you know, obviously I do um, both male and female characters doing doing improv. Um, and I'd be like, oh, God, what's it going to be like after I come out? Like, it's going to be weird doing, doing, like, I, I, be, I felt both like, oh, God, I'm going to be under so much pressure, extra pressure when I do female characters uh, after I come out and it's going to be weird to go back and do male characters. Um, but actually after I came out, all my characters got stronger. They all became better because there's none of that background shadow in your head. But when you do stand up, you really need to have a very strong perspective or your take on... I think so. ...on the world or on on your material. That's what allows you to deliver really uh, jokes with a lot of conviction. It's what I think makes good stand-up is when it's coming from a very strong perspective Mm. and it's the best when you do have a strong sense of yourself. To deliver that perspective from. Somebody's having sex with you. You can't tell them you're thinking about minotaurs. <laughs> They're like, oh, hey, baby, what's on your mind? And uh, you don't say minotaurs. Then they think you're thinking about minotaurs in a sexy way. Then you've opened up a whole world of trouble. <laughs> and you come home and they'll be there in a cow mask. <laughs> hey, babe, you know what you like? <laughs> Then I've got to play out the sexy minotaur scenario, and I really don't know how that goes. <laughs> oh no, I'm lost in a maze, maze. I hope the minotaur doesn't find me. <laughs> so I just haven't, I haven't been able to write any sexual fantasies. Look, my book, look, it's empty. <laughs> it's just nothing. I've got nothing at all. But I'm going to try. I need to, otherwise DHS will be on my back. So I'm going to try to tell you my fantasy. So it's the early 1800s. We're in the English Regency. <laughs> and on our spaceship, out, Medusa is sitting having a cup of tea. And then who should walk in and disturb her? Fucking no one, because she's a Medusa and she's a badass queen and she doesn't need anybody. (laughs) Oh, look, the cup of tea can be steamy, if you insist. Welcome back from the break. Hey. Can I sing you a little song that I tried to write for you? (laughs) Sure. Oh, oh, Nikki, would you like a bicky? And a cup of tea as you chat with me. Oh, 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 Nikki. <laughs> you dog. <laughs> well, it was a very nice cup of tea. We had a nice cup of tea on the Thank break. Thank you. Yes, we lovely. had a nice uh, Lady Grey in the break. Mm. 
Nice. We didn't have any bikis though, but uh, I had to sing that song. <laughs> and the whole, you know, the whole gin program in the beginning kind of uh, spoiled my entry mm-hmm. opening <laughs> song, <laughs> so I did it now. <laughs> uh, so we were talking before the sure. break about finding your comedic voice, mm-hmm. and you were saying that you came into it after all of this growth as a person and a performer, um, and mm-hmm. so you came to it with a better idea of who you were and what your perspective was yeah yeah which I, like I'm I'm great like at some you know on one level there's a lot of things which I wish I'd done when I was younger because mm. um, then you'd sort of have more time to work at things on the other there is something to be said for doing things when you've got all the skills that you need mm. to, to do stuff this um, notion of time running out is again yeah. another construct of this identity um, paranoia that we yeah. have, isn't it? Like, if I, if, who am I? And I need, I need to be it now. I need to be it while I'm still young. Enough. And it's, it's really, it's a really destructive one with trans people in particular, mm. because um, you know, obviously, like on a physical level, it's great if you can come out and start hormone therapy and stuff before you go through puberty, before you have to go through all that horror um, that you otherwise go through as an adolescent. Mm. But there can be that idea that if you don't do it soon enough, then it's like, oh my God, it's too late, which is what I was like for, for ages. Mm. I sort of got into my 20s and I was like, oh no, I've missed my moment. I missed the time in which I could do that. Mm. Um, and so I'd always known I wanted to do that, but then I was like, well, I, I can't now. And, you know, there's no reason for that because obviously like, all that happened was I faffed around for years being sad and then I went and did it anyway. Mm. Um, and on some levels, like as I said, like there's some things which are good about that because it meant that at the time when I did transition, I was much more mature, much more resilient. I had a much stronger friends mm. network. I had much more confidence in being able to uh, survived going through the difficult parts of it than I would have had when mm. I was when I was younger. Mm. You have all these, especially I find in your twenties, I, f- I find you have all these this sense of these false timelines mm. that you need to work under, and our society does create all these kind of fake timelines as well. And like I suppose for for romantic people and people who like relationships and stuff, there seems to be a lot of pressure on that as well. Like find someone before you're th- this age, yeah, or absolutely. you're going to be too old to get married or too old haven't just like well no like mm. as long as you're here mm. as long as you're here on this planet and yeah. you've got a heartbeat you can do whatever you want <laughs> absolutely I, I can't speak for men because I, I understand that everyone has their pressures but I don't understand what it's like to be uh, a man in the world today but from a woman's perspective we know that people are always telling us about our sexually attractive like age mm. range oh yeah but gender roles are changing and it's a source of anxiety for for mm. some people so for example even me the idea of being 33 years old um single unmarried makes my family very uneasy wow. like uh. me as a uh, me uh, as a person mm. i'm okay I'm, I'm fine i'm doing like really great but in their eyes, me as a woman, I'm incomplete mm. until I've been married. And uh, I, I'm incomplete until I've become a mother. And 
that old chestnut. That old chestnut. Mm. So I find, uh, I mean, my family is now has come around to see my point of view when we've had lots of discussions about the changing roles of uh, mating and <laughs> gender <laughs> in this age. But women's roles are changing, but mm. it's it's quite a painful process still, the change right yeah. now. What's a future that you want to see in terms of gender? I do wonder sometimes, like, if in, in the future, like, gender might disappear as a concept and I might see a bit dinosaurian because so, um, it's been such a strong issue in in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the important thing is I want people to talk about gender because it wasn't, you know, for me it wasn't a thing I could talk about. Wasn't a thing that wasn't allowed to be a conversation about. As I mentioned earlier, my family knew everyone could see that I was not <laughs> that you were in, in the closet. You know yeah. that I was um, that I, I was uh, feminine and uh, as a very sort of genderqueer looking kid. But um, people would people would talk about it. My mum actually spoke to my. Um, my grandfather about the possibility that I was trans. Uh, they could see that they could they knew that, but they wouldn't talk to me about it. Like we never had that conversation, and the response then was to push it out, uh, and the response to um, the response to someone um, seeming queer was to push them into like rarely stereotypical activities that would drive that out of them. Jeez, and. It was like, because you never have, like, all this happens when you're still at an age when you don't have the language and you don't have the confidence to talk about it. Um, And so you can see that people are like, oh, they all know that I'm a girl, but they're still making me go and do this. And it's, that's the thing that I would like to go away, is just that assumption. Mm. Like, you need to talk to children about gender mm-hmm. when they're like before they go into puberty you need to talk to them about gender in the middle of puberty you need to talk to them about gender at the end of puberty it's mm-hmm. like it's an ongoing process through the whole thing yeah and i remember like say mid-puberty like about um 15 or so and all my school marks started dropping off everything i was just so devastated because this was the time i was meant to be getting breasts and it's meant to be like you know, I, I didn't even work to me. Obviously, like, there's logistical things I hadn't worked out, but it didn't even really occur to me that I would never get a period, that sort of stuff. It just, those sort of things that girls were going through and it should have been happening to me and it wasn't and it was so upsetting. Mm. Um, and But all that people see is that my marks drop because mm. I'm not paying attention at school anymore. I'm not able to do that anymore. Mm. But then people don't ever, like, a Back at that point, people didn't ever talk to you about mm. what you were, were going through or how you were dealing with things. They would just be angry that your marks are bad. And mm. the conversations with you would only ever be about, like, academic things. How do you get, like, how do you apply yourself more? How do you do this more? All the things that you shouldn't be doing. Uh, so everything th- was, the onus was on you. You need to do better. Well, but the thing, like, when you're dealing with personal issues, which are large, the last thing you need to be doing is throwing yourself at some... Mm school assignment you you don't need distractions you no. need to deal with your personal stuff first before you can be good at doing the other things yeah 
Uh, but the way, certainly the way we did it then and the way I, you know, fear we still do it in a lot of places now is completely counter, counterproductive like that. That we expect people to push their personal concerns aside and to throw themselves into into work, work or school or, or things like that. Absolutely. Which, you know, which aren't aren't substitutes for personal growth, aren't yeah. substitutes for personal development. And in the long run, it's not a productive way of doing it either. If you're pushing personal stuff down to focus on work, you don't end up being good at that work in the end. You make such a good point. Academic or work achievements aren't substitutes for personal growth and they're not more important than feelings. Mm. They're not more important than the subtle ways in which gender is performed or you're expected to mm. perform things. And talking to your kids about these things isn't frou-frou or yeah. it's not making them into a bunch of soft crybabies. It's the most essential thing for their functioning as an organism. Mm. And it's so, and the thing is, like, I think one thing that stood out with talking to my parents in particular is that they weren't aware how hard it was to talk to them because they're not, they weren't aware then of the way that their language or the way they spoke about the world affected affected us as, as children. They had this idea of like, oh, our kids could talk to us about anything. Um, but as a kid, when you're like, oh, I'm so scared about talking about this, I'm so scared about talking about this, all you need to see is one time your parent tutting over the Mardi Gras and you're like, oh, never. Mm-hmm. I'll never speak to them. I'll never be able to mention it to them. Mm-hmm. All you need is to be sitting, even like sitting with a parent and watching a TV program where anti-queer propaganda comes up, which was very common when I was when I was a child, to see that and the parent not respond and not address it. Um and you're like, oh, this is what the world thinks. Mm-hmm. And the parents are on board. They agree with what's going on in the world, even if they don't. Having a focus on gender, I think, is a really good thing. I know it's scary for a lot of people mm-hmm. to be confronted with new ideas of thinking about gender now. But it actually can be so liberating if everyone sat down and thought about what it means to them, what their gender does, or, or their assigned identity, or their adopted identity or anything, what their expectations of their gender in society are and mm. how they're serving them and how, how how do they make them feel. If everyone thought about this just in their minds, it would go towards their mental health. Well, yeah, it's because it's not like these people don't need to think about how they relate to gender either. It's yeah, in fact, this massive load of expectations gets dumped on everyone and exactly. we all need to deal with it. Um, but yeah, it's scary, but I think that it doesn't have to be scary if we think of it in terms of doing a little bit of um, trying to make the world a little bit better for ourselves. If we mm. think about it a bit more selfishly, that if I sit and evaluate how my gender identity is working for me at this point, then I might be able to make my own life a little bit better maybe, or I might be able to move towards something that makes me happy. Mm. that might help to diffuse some of the anxiety that people start feeling whenever the topic of gender comes up. Yeah, but ultimately you do need to think about what's going to, what's going to make you happy. The problem with a lot of how we think about it is you think in terms of those shoulds and those obligations and things like that. Because that's a massive thing about, about coming out. It's like you think about like, oh God, like what's this going to do to the parents? What's this going to do to this? Like you think in terms of all these 
obligations placed on you. And at some point you do need to go, well, what's actually going to be best in my world? What's going to make things? Mm. What is your idea of a meaningful life for you? It's an interesting question. I think, so I read an interview once with somebody who worked in palliative care with people who were dying. And so he'd spoken to a lot of people who had about their, their regrets, their end of life regrets and the things they look back on. So a lot of people regret all those things that they didn't do or things they wanted and didn't admit they wanted and things like that. But this one person he spoke to really stuck in my mind who was this, um, who was this like gay guy who had done everything. <laughs> he like lived this this wild life, wow. um, you know, and like and an older generation and it was really, um, you know, quite outre to come out as gay and stuff like that. And his words on, on as he's getting to the end of his life was, well, I, I sure squeezed everything out of that lemon. <laughs> it was like along those lines. It's like he just really got everything he could out of life. And that's what I think the meaningful life is. Like you want to get to the end of it with that feeling of like, well, I gave that a red hot go. That's really and nice. And that's, that's how I want to feel at the end. Like you're not ever going to be able to achieve all the things that you want. The world isn't like that. You might make the world a better place. You hope so. But the world is constantly becoming a better and a worse place all the time. It's, mm. um, I'd, I'd hate to think of, like, think that your personal value lay on some narrative of the earth, which could then easily be destroyed by politics or other things entirely beyond your control. That's how I think you get the, the most out of it, is just being like, Am I curious about a thing? I'll learn about it. Do I want to do a thing? I'll do that. I'll just like, you need to, to throw yourself at life as much as you can. Um, oh, that is so beautiful, Nikki. Oh, thank you. When you said, I hate to think that your personal value depended on some narrative that was just given to you. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you for coming on my podcast. I loved having you on it. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. And thanks for, for playing me with gin and tea. <laughs> And songs about Bickies. And you are delightful and funny. And do you have anything to plug? <laughs> well, I always have things to plug. I've always got shows on. But in late September, late September, I should have my dates. But you can catch me at Trades Hall in Wasp Movie. That's a comedy show about wasps. I cannot wait. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.